Chapter 11 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dread, Chapter 11 The Lovers. They rode on in silence till their horses' feet again clattered in the clear, pebbly water of the stream. Here Nina checked her horse, and pointing round the circle of pine forests, and up the stream, overhung with bending trees and branches, said, "'Hush! Listen!' Both stopped and heard the swaying of the pine trees, the babble of the waters, and the cawing of distant crows, and the tapping of the woodpecker. "'How beautiful everything is,' she said. "'It seems to me so sad that people must die. "'I never saw anybody dead before, "'and you don't know how it makes me feel. "'To think that that poor woman was just such a girl as I am, "'and used to be just so full of life "'and never thought any more than I do "'that she should lie there all cold and dead. "'Why is it things are made so beautiful if we must die?' "'Remember what you said to the old man, Miss Nina. "'Perhaps she sees more beautiful things now.' "'In heaven? "'Yes, I wish we knew more about heaven, "'so that it would seem natural and home-like to us, "'as this world does. "'As for me, I can't feel that I ever want to leave this world. "'I enjoy living so much. "'I can't forget how cold her hand was. "'I never felt anything like that cold.' In all the varying moods of Nina, Clayton had never seen anything that resembled this, but he understood the peculiar singleness and earnestness of nature, which made any one idea or impression for a time absolute in her mind. They turned their horses into the wood-path and rode on in silence. "'Do you know,' she said, "'it's such a change coming from New York to live here.' "'Everything is so unformed, so wild, and so lonely. "'I never saw anything so lonesome as these woods are. "'Here you can ride miles and miles, hours and hours, "'and hear nothing but the swaying of the pine trees, "'just as you hear it now. "'Our place, you never were there, were you, "'stands all by itself, miles from any other. "'And I've been for so many years used to a thickly settled country "'that it seems very strange to me.' I can't help thinking things look rather deserted and desolate here. It makes me rather sober and sad. I don't know as you'll like the appearance of our place. A great many things are going to decay about it, and yet there are some things that can't decay, for Papa was very fond of trees and shrubbery, and we have a good deal more of them than usual. Are you fond of trees? Yes, I'm almost a tree worshipper. I have no respect for a man who can't appreciate a tree. The only good thing I ever heard of Xerxes was that he was so transported by the beauty of a plane tree that he hung it with chains of gold. This is a little poetical island in the barbarism of those days. Xerxes? I believe I studied something about him in that dismal, tedious history of Madame Ardennes, but nothing so interesting as that, I'm sure. But what should he hang gold chains on the tree for? "'Twas the best way he knew of expressing his good opinion. "'Do you know,' said Nina, half-checking her horse suddenly, 
that I never had the least idea that these men were alive that we read about in these histories, or that they had any feelings like ours. We always studied the lessons and learnt the hard names, and how forty thousand were killed on one side, and fifty thousand on the other, and we don't know any more about it than if we never had. That's the way we girls studied at school, except a few pokey ones who wanted to be learned or meant to be teachers. An interesting resume, certainly, said Clayton, laughing. But how strange it is to think that all those folks we read about are alive now, doing something somewhere, and I get to wondering where they are, Xerxes and Alexander and the rest of them. Why, they are so full of life they kept everything in commotion while in this world, and I wonder if they have been keeping a-going ever since. Perhaps Xerxes has been looking around at our trees. Nobody knows. But here we are coming now to the beginning of our grounds. There, you see that holly hedge? Mama had that set out. She traveled in England and liked the hedges there so much that she thought she would see what could be done with our American holly. So she had these brought from the woods and planted. You see, it all grows wild now because it hasn't been cut for many years. And this live oak avenue my grandfather set out, it's my pride and delight. As she spoke, a pair of broad gates swung open, and they cantered in beneath the twilight arches of the oaks. Long wreaths of pearly moss hung swinging from the branches, and although the sun now was at high noon, a dewy, dreamy coolness seemed to rustle through all the leaves. As Clayton passed in, he took off his hat as he had often done in foreign countries in cathedrals. "'Welcome to Canama,' she said, riding up to him and looking up frankly into his face. The air, half queenly, half childish, with which this was said, was acknowledged by Clayton with a grave smile as he replied, bowing, "'Thank you, madam.' "'Perhaps,' she added in a grave tone, "'you'll be sorry you ever came here.' "'What do you mean by that?' I don't know. It just came into my head to say it. We none of us ever know what's going to come of what we do. At this instant, a violent clamor, like the cawing of a crow, rose on one side of the avenue, and the moment after, Tom Tit appeared, caracoling and cutting a somerset, his curls flying, his cheeks glowing. What, Tom Tit, what on earth is this for? "'Laws, Mrs. Dare's been a gentleman waiting for you at the house these two hours, "'and Mrs. She's done got on her best cap and gone down in the parlor for him.' "'Nina felt herself blush to the roots of her hair "'and was vexed and provoked to think she did so. "'Involuntarily her eyes met Clayton's, "'but he expressed neither curiosity nor concern. "'What a pretty drapery this light moss makes,' he said, I wasn't aware that it grew up so high in the state. Yes, it is very pretty, said Nina abstractedly. Clayton, however, had noticed both the message and the blush, and was not so ill-informed as Nina supposed as to the whole affair, having heard from a New York correspondent of the probability that a rival might appear upon the field about this time. He was rather curious to watch the development produced by this event. 
they paced up the avenue conversing in disconnected intervals till they came out on the lawn which fronted the mansion a large gray three-story building surrounded on the four sides by wide balconies of wood access was had to the lower of these by a broad flight of steps and there nina saw plain enough her aunt nesbit in all the proprieties of cap and silk gown sitting making the agreeable to mr carson mr frederick augustus carson was one of those nice little epitomes of conventional society which appear to such advantage in factitious life and are so out of place in the undress sincere surroundings of country life nina had liked his society extremely well in the drawing-rooms and opera-houses of new york but in the train of thought inspired by the lonely and secluded life she was now leading it seemed to her an absolute impossibility that she could even in coquetry and in sport have allowed such an one to set up pretensions to her hand and heart she was vexed with herself that she had done so and therefore not in the most amiable mood for a meeting therefore when on ascending the steps he rushed precipitately forward and offered his hand calling her nina she was ready to die with vexation she observed too a peculiar swelling and rustling of aunt nesbit's plumage an indescribable air of tender satisfaction peculiar to elderly ladies who were taking an interest in an affair of the heart which led her to apprehend that the bachelor had commenced operations by declaring his position to her twas with some embarrassment that nina introduced mr clayton whom aunt nesbit received with a most stately curtsey and mr carson with a patronizing bow mr carson's been waiting for you these two hours said aunt nesbit very warm riding nina said mr carson observing her red cheeks you've been riding too fast i fear you must be careful of yourself i've known people bring on very grave illnesses by overheating the blood clayton seated himself near the door and seemed to be intent on the scene without and carson drawing his chair close to nina asked in a confidential tone who is that gentleman mr clayton of claytonville said nina with as much hauteur as she could assume ah yes <clears throat> i've heard of the family a very nice family a very worthy young man extremely i am told shall be happy to make his acquaintance i beg said nina rising the gentleman will excuse me a moment or two clayton replied by a grave bow while mr carson with great empressement handed nina to the door the moment it was closed she stamped with anger in the entry the provoking fool to take these airs with me and i too i deserve it what on earth could make me think i could tolerate that man as if nina's cup were not yet full aunt nesbit followed her to her chamber with an air of unusual graciousness nina my dear he has told me all about it and i assure you i'm very much pleased with him told you all about what said nina why your engagement to be sure i'm delighted to think you've done so well i think your aunt maria and all of them will be delighted takes a weight of care off my mind i wish you wouldn't trouble yourself about me or my affairs aunt nesbit and as for this old pussycat with his squeaking boots i won't have him purring round me that's certain 
so provoking to take that way towards me call me nina and talk as though he were lord paramount of me and everything here i'll let him know why nina seems to me this is very strange conduct i'm very much astonished at you i dare say you are aunt i never knew the time i didn't astonish you but this man i detest well then my dear what were you engaged to him for engaged aunt for pity's sake do hush engaged i should like to know what a new york engagement amounts to engaged at the opera engaged for a joke why he was my bouquet holder the man is just an opera libretto he was very useful in his time but who wants him afterwards but my dear nina this trifling with gentlemen's hearts i'll warrant his heart it's neither sugar nor salt i'll assure you i'll tell you what aunt he loves good eating good drinking nice clothes nice houses and good times generally and he wants a pretty wife as a part of a whole and he thinks he'll take me but he is mistaken calling me nina indeed just let me have a chance of seeing him alone i'll teach him to call me nina i'll let him know how things stand but nina you must confess you've given him occasion for all this well supposing i have i'll give him occasion for something else then why my dear he came on to know when you'll fix the day to be married married oh my gracious just think of the creatures talking about it well it is my fault as you say but i'll do the best i can to mend it well i'm real sorry for him you are aunt why don't you take him for yourself then you're as young and good-looking as he is nina how you talk said aunt nesbit coloring and bridling there was a time when i wasn't bad-looking to be sure but that's long since past oh that's because you always dress in stone color and drab said nina as she stood brushing and arranging her curls come now and go down aunt and do the best you can till i make my appearance after all as you say i'm the most to blame there's no use in being vexed with the old soul so aunt do be as fascinating as you can see if you can't console him only remember how you used to turn off lovers when you were of my age and who is this other gentleman nina oh nothing he's only a friend of mine a very good man good enough for a minister any day aunt and not so stupid as good people generally are either well perhaps you're engaged to him no i am not that is to say i won't be to anybody this is an unsufferable business i like mr clayton because he can let me alone don't look at me in that abominably delighted way all the time and dance about calling me nina he and i are very good friends that's all i'm not going to have any engagements anywhere well nina i'll go down and you make haste while the gentlemen and aunt nesbitt were waiting in the salon carson made himself extremely happy and at home it was a large cool apartment passing like a hall completely through the centre of the house long french windows at either end opened on to balconies the pillars of the balconies were draped and garlanded with wreaths of roses now in full bloom the floor of the room was the polished mosaic of different colours to which we have formerly alluded over the mantelpiece was sculptured in oak the gordon arms 
The room was wainscoted with dark wood, and hung with several fine paintings by Copley and Stuart of different members of the family. A grand piano, lately arrived from New York, was the most modern-looking article in the room. Most of the furniture was of heavy dark mahogany of an antique pattern. Clayton sat by the door, still admiring the avenue of oaks, which were to be seen across the waving green of the lawn. In about half an hour, Nina reappeared in a flossy cloud of muslin, lace, and gauzy ribbons. Dress was one of those accomplishments for which the little gypsy had a natural instinct, and without any apparent thought she always fell into that kind of color and material which harmonized with her style of appearance and character. There was always something floating and buoyant about the arrangement of her garments and drapery, so that to see her move across the floor gave one an airy kind of sensation, like the gambols of thistledown. Her brown eyes had a peculiar resemblance to a bird's, and this effect was increased by the twinkling motion of the head and a fluttering habit of movement peculiar to herself, so that when she swept by in rosy gauzes and laid one ungloved hand lightly on the piano, she seemed to Clayton much like some saucy bird, very good indeed if let alone, but ready to fly on the slightest approach. Clayton had the rare faculty of taking in every available point of observation without appearing to stare. "'Pon my word, Dinah,' said Mr. Carson, coming towards her with a most delighted air, "'you look as if you had fallen out of a rainbow.' Dinah turned away very coolly and began arranging her music. "'Oh, that's right,' said Carson. "'Give us one of your songs. "'Sing something from the Favorati.' "'You know it's my favorite opera,' said he, assuming a most sentimental expression. "'Oh, I'm entirely out of practice. I don't sing at all. I'm sick of all those opera songs.' And Nina skimmed across the floor and out of the open door by which Clayton was lounging, and began busying herself amid the flowers that wreathed the porch. In a moment Carson was at her heels, for he was one of those persons who seemed to think it a duty never to allow any one to be quiet.' if they can possibly prevent it. "'Have you ever studied the language of flowers, Nina?' said he. "'No, I don't like to study languages.' "'You know the significance of a full-blown rose?' said he, tenderly presenting her with one. Nina took the rose, coloring with vexation, and then plucking from the bush a rose of two or three days' bloom, whose leaves were falling out, she handed it to him and said, do you understand the significance of this? Oh, you have made an unfortunate selection. This rose is all falling to pieces, said Mr. Carson innocently. So I observed, said Nina, turning away quickly, then making one of her darting movements. She was in the middle of the salon again, just as the waiter announced dinner. Clayton rose gravely and offered his arm to Aunt Nesbitt, and Nina found herself obliged to accept the delighted escort of Mr. Carson, who, entirely unperceiving, was in the briskest possible spirits and established himself comfortably between Aunt Nesbitt and Nina. "'You must find it very dull here, very barren country, shockingly so. What do you find to interest yourself in?' said he. "'Will you take some of this gumbo?' replied Nina. "'I always thought,' said Aunt Nesbitt, "'it was a good plan for girls to have a course of reading "'marked out to them when they left school.' 
oh certainly said carson i shall be happy to mark out one for her i've done it for several young ladies at this moment nina accidentally happened to catch clayton's eye which was fixed upon mr carson with an air of quiet amusement greatly disconcerting to her now said mr carson i have no opinion of making blues of young ladies but still i think mrs nesbitt that a little useful information adds greatly to their charms don't you yes said mrs nesbitt i've been reading gibbon's decline and fall of the roman empire lately yes said dinah and has been busy about that ever since i can remember that's a very nice book said mr carson looking solemnly at dinah only mrs nesbitt aren't you afraid of the infidel principle i think informing the minds of the young you know one cannot be too careful why he struck me as a very pious writer said aunt nesbitt innocently i'm sure he makes the most religious reflections all along i liked him particularly on that account it seemed to nina that without looking at clayton she was forced to meet his eye no matter whether she directed her attention to the asparagus or the potatoes it was her fatality always to end by a re-encounter with his eye and she saw for some reason or other the conversation was extremely amusing to him for my part said nina i don't know what sort of principles aunt nesbitt's history there has but one thing i'm pretty certain of that i'm not in any danger from any such thick closed printed old stupid-looking books as that i hate reading and i don't intend to have my mind formed so that nobody need trouble themselves to mark out courses for me what is it to me what all these old empires have been a hundred years ago it is as much as i can do to attend to what is going on now for my part said aunt nesbitt i have always regretted that i neglected the cultivation of my mind when i was young i was like nina here immersed in vanity and folly people always talk said nina reddening as if there was but one kind of vanity and folly in this world i think there can be as much learned vanity and folly as we girls have and she looked at clayton indignantly as she saw him laughing i agree with miss gordon entirely there is a great deal of very stupid respectable trifling which people pursue under the head of courses of reading he said and i don't wonder that most compends of history which are studied in schools should inspire any lively young lady with a lifelong horror not only of history but of reading do you think so said nina with a look of inexpressible relief i do indeed said clayton and it would have been a very good thing for many of our historians if they had been obliged to have shaped their histories so that they would interest a lively schoolgirl. we literary men then would have found less sleepy reading there is no reason why a young lady who would sit up all night reading a novel should not be made to sit up all night with a history i'll venture to say there's no romance can come up to the gorgeousness and splendor and the dramatic power of things that really have happened all that's wanting is to have it set before us with an air of reality but then said nana you'd have to make the history into a romance <laughs> well a good historical romance is generally truer than a dull history because it gives some sort of conception of the truth whereas the dull history gives none well then said nina i'll confess now that about all the history i do know has been got from walter scott's novels 
i always told our history teacher so but she insisted upon it that it was very dangerous reading for my part said miss nesbit i have a great horror of novel reading particularly for young ladies it did me a great deal of harm when i was young it dissipates the mind it gives false views of life oh law said nina we used to write compositions about that and i've got it all by heart how it raises false expectations and leads people to pursue phantoms rainbows and meteors and all that sort of thing and yet said clayton all these objections would lie against perfectly true history and the more so just in proportion to its truth if the history of napoleon bonaparte were graphically and minutely given it would lie open to the very same objections it would produce the very same cravings for something out of the commonplace course of life there would be the same dazzling mixture of bad and good qualities in the hero and the same lassitude and exhaustion after the story was finished and common history does not do this simply because it is not true does not produce a vivid impression of the reality as it happened aunt nesbit only got an indefinite impression from this harangue that clayton was defending novel reading and felt herself called to employ her own peculiar line of reasoning to meet it which consisted in saying the same thing over and over at regular intervals without appearing to hear or notice anything said in reply accordingly she now drew herself up with a slightly virtuous air and said to mr clayton i must say after all that i don't approve of novel reading it gives false views of life and disgusts young people with their duties i was only showing madam that the same objection would apply to the best written history said clayton i think novel reading does a great deal of harm rejoined aunt nesbit i never allow myself to read any work of fiction i'm principled against it for my part said nina i wish i could find that kind of history you're speaking of i believe i could read that twould be very interesting history certainly said mr carson i should think it would prove a very charming mode of writing i wonder somebody don't produce one for my part said aunt nesbit i confine myself entirely to what is practically useful useful information is all i desire well i suppose then i'm very wicked said nina but i don't like anything useful why i've sometimes thought when i've been in the garden that the summer savory sage and sweet marjoram were just as pretty as many other flowers and i couldn't see any reason why i shouldn't like a sprig of one of them for a bouquet except i've seen them used for stuffing turkeys well now that seems very bad of me don't it that reminds me said aunt nesbit that rose has been putting sage into this turkey again after all that i said to her i believe she does it on purpose at this moment harry appeared at the door and requested to speak to nina after a few moments whispered conversation she came back to the table apparently disconcerted i'm so sorry so very sorry she said harry has been riding all around the country to find a minister to attend the funeral this evening it will be such a disappointment to that poor fellow you know the negroes think so much of having prayers at the grave if no one else can be found to read prayers i will said clayton oh thank you will you indeed said nina i'm glad of it now for poor tiff's sake the coach will be out at five o'clock and we'll ride over together and make as much of a party as we can 
"'Why, child,' said Aunt Nesbitt to Nina after they returned to the parlor, "'I did not know that Mr. Clayton was an Episcopalian.' "'He isn't,' said Nina. "'He and his family all attend the Presbyterian Church.' "'How strange that he should offer to read prayers. "'I don't approve of such things for my part.' "'Such things as what?' "'Countenancing Episcopalian errors. "'If we are right, they are wrong, and we ought not to countenance them.' But, Aunt, a burial service is beautiful. Don't approve of it. Why, you know, as Clayton isn't a minister, he would not feel like making an extempore prayer. Shows great looseness of religious principle, said Aunt Nesbitt. Don't approve of it. End of chapter 11 The Lovers